2: planetary bodies and moons of our solar system are mysterious, dynamic, even beautiful places. But those aren't the qualities that drive astrobiologists to study them.
3: There are many, many exciting things about Europa, but one of the most exciting things about it is that it has a very large ocean beneath its icy crust. And so we're very excited for the potential that that ocean is a habitable environment. The search for evidence of
2: life is motivating a a suite of new NASA missions, and already there are suggestions about what it would mean to find it.
3: With Europa, it's far enough out that there's been no exchange of material between our, our worlds. And so, almost for sure, any life that started there will have started separately from life on Earth.
2: Meanwhile, while we don't know whether there's life on Mars now, there's at least one scientist who wants to export Earth life to give the red planet a biota, to, to carpet it with plants and microscopic animals.
1: I've been studying Mars for decades, but still, when I look at those pictures, it touches something familiar. And I don't get that sense of familiarity from any of the other worlds in our solar system. And that's part of the urge to make it a place full of life.
2: Where and how far will our quest to find life beyond Earth take us? This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak.
4: I'm Molly Bentley. A batch of exciting new spacecraft and telescopes that will help with the search for life are prepared to examine a moon with an icy ocean, to sample an ancient planetary surface, and to sniff the atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars, as we ask in this episode whether any of them might be suitable for life.
2: When people think about life beyond Earth, they mostly think about Mars. But some astrobiologists have bumped this rusty, dusty planet down on their list of most encouraging sites for off-Earth habitability in favor of one of Jupiter's moons, Europa. Now, if it were up to an Arthur C. Clarke novel, we wouldn't dare to visit Europa. In his science fiction series, Space Odyssey, this novelist recognized the moon's special allure His aliens send a warning message to Earthlings. All these worlds are yours, except Europa. Attempt no landing there. Well, as the moon's protectors, these aliens wanted life in its oceans to evolve without any interference.
4: But the ice-covered oceans of Europa are exactly where we wish to search, precisely because it's possible that life is swimming in the dark seas beneath that ice. As an enthusiastic advocate of space travel, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, he was knighted in 2000, undoubtedly would have approved of NASA's upcoming reconnaissance mission and possible attempted landing on his seductive moon.
2: The launch of NASA's Europa Clipper mission is scheduled for 2024. It's headed to a satellite of the largest planet of our solar system. It's a half billion miles away. Planetary scientist and Europa Clipper staff scientist, Kate Kraft, is happy to explain why we should ignore the warnings of science fiction and go there.
3: It's a great question. Uh, There are many, many exciting things about Europa, but one of the most exciting things about it is that it has a very large ocean beneath its icy crust. And so we're very excited for the potential that that ocean is a habitable environment that may have all the ingredients energy, building blocks, and things that may have allowed life to begin.
2: Well, so what you're saying is that we're going to Europa because there may be living things there, right?
3: Right. I mean, there could be living things there now, maybe, or maybe in the past. Um, we don't really know yet, like how long it takes life to once it starts to evolve and and actually, you know, really get a hold on the place. But w- there is potential there. We see a lot of potential.
2: Well, how do we know there's an ocean there? I mean, you don't see it in the photos made from the flyby missions.
3: Yeah, I mean that's true, right? So we, for many years, right, astronomers have looked out there, and we never would have imagined that a place that far from the sun is so cold might actually have liquid water somewhere, uh, you know, beneath the surface, but um, previous missions, Voyager and Galileo have done flybys of the Moon and got sort of inklings of this potential for there to be liquid and the way that it happened is um, uh, one of the instruments, the magnetometer, actually got a reading of a magnetic field coming from the moon. And it's not the moon itself that's producing this magnetic field, but Jupiter has a really strong magnetic field. So it, as that magnetic field passes through its moons, it can induce a magnetic field. But it needs a material that can kind of pass on that magnetic strength to where the instrument can make a measurement. So when the magnetometer saw a magnetic field at Europa, it was really amazing. And we said, well, there has to be potentially a saltwater ocean that can be conductive and pass that magnetic field through to the instrument.
2: So Europa kind of has its own internal wire, if you will. I mean, salt water. How how much water are we talking about? I mean, it's obviously below the surface, so you can't see it. Do you get any ideas about uh... Oh,
3: yeah. So, the other thing we we got a little bit of info about um, based on these previous missions is the structure of the moon. So, we know the outer, like, 100 to 120 kilometers or, or, you know, miles and miles of material is made of water ice. So, we don't know exactly how much of it's actually liquid water and how much of it is, is solid ice, but we know that it's made of H2O. But estimates indicate that the the water, the liquid water portion of that ice shell, is actually more than two times the volume of water that we have on all of the oceans and rivers, lakes on the surface of the earth. So more than two times. And it's been there for,
2: for four billion or more years, right? I mean, it's not new. So maybe the, something's cooked up there, but okay. Let's consider there's something under all that ice that might be alive, but of course it's going to be pretty dark under that ice, right? I mean, it can't be something that depends on photosynthesis or... Or anything like that? I mean, what could live down there?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question, and we, you know, for the longest time on uh, the scientists here on Earth, we always thought that life needed light, right, like sunlight, that kind of energy, but then in the late 70s, we were doing more exploration of our own oceans here, and we got to these places at the seafloor, the hydrothermal vents down there, where they were so deep in our ocean that the sunlight doesn't make it that deep, but we found, you know, to our, very much our surprise, that where the chemistry was coming out from the seafloor in those hydrothermal vents. There were organisms living off just that chemistry that was coming out of the seafloor and was able to survive just on that chemistry. It didn't need the light from our sun and so now that really opened up this realm of possibility for these icy ocean worlds out there which don't get any sunlight in their ocean but yet they get the nutrients or the chemistry from these potential hydrothermal vents. Now we think there's hydrothermal vents there because it also has this internal energy that's produced by its orbit around its parent body so europa has jupiter another little body enceladus has has saturn and when they go around their parent bodies they are pulled and tugged on and the moon flexes that's called tidal forcing that tidal forcing makes a lot of friction in the moon and that frictional heat can come to the seafloor and cause a lot of heat and to um, allow the chemistry then to be pulled from the crust and enter into the ocean. So that energy is what that life might live off down there.
2: What you're saying here is there there could be black smokers at the bottom exactly. of the uh, mm-hmm. European Ocean and, and some sort of life on that. Now, I, I suppose we're not talking about tuna or giant squids or anything like that or anything. Well, I mean, beings. honestly, I mean-
3: yeah, we, I mean, we don't know for sure, right? But our our thoughts are that it takes those are they are lower energy environments than we have here on the earth and so for for larger organisms to exist they would need more energy most likely right but but um so we are really thinking about you know the smaller microbes and kinds of things that we might find there Mm
2: -hmm. okay bacteria i mean that would be exciting if you found bacteria there, because you could say, hey, look, you know, here's another world that has life. Well,
3: and especially because it would have to have a separate origin from the Earth life, because, so like, for example, if we find life on Mars someday, there's potential that Mars and Earth, well, we know that they've exchanged material because we find um, meteorites from Mars and and then vice versa. But with Europa, it's far enough out that it really, there's been no exchange of material between our, our worlds. And so, Almost for sure, any life that started there will have started separately from life here on Earth. So it's a separate origin of life.
2: Okay, so the big advantage of finding life on Europa is it won't just be earthly life that, you know, somehow infected Europa <laughs> right, or maybe the right. other way around. not yeah. Okay, but so in comes NASA and says, all right, well, let's make a mission to Europa. Uh, and the clipper mission is the mission that you're talking about. That's the one you're working on now. What's it going to do?
3: So, Europa Clipper is going to travel to Europa and do flybys of Europa, so it'll orbit Jupiter and do multiple flybys, more than 50 flybys uh, of the Moon, and uh, we will be taking all kinds of data. We have a radar instrument that can look into the ice crust and, and see the density contrast, so if there's any water pockets in the ice crust. Uh, We have a magnetometer instrument, we have in situ instruments, we'll actually kind of taste any material that's floating around. If there's a plume or or plumes at Europa, we'll be able to fly through those and and taste uh, the material, um, telling us a lot about its composition. But actually, so Clipper's not a life detection mission, just to clear the air on that, just because that that really requires even, like, going to the next level. But what we're really out to do is establish 100%, yes, there's an ocean, and how habitable is that ocean?
2: Okay, so it's doing a reconnaissance for a follow-up mission, presumably, that if everything looks good, you know, you might send something there to actually get below the ice somehow. Right. I, I, are people already thinking about that?
3: Oh, yeah. So um, we have right now, the there's a Europa Lander study team that's been working for several years to really think about a landed mission uh, at... Europa, which would land and collect uh, samples that would be brought into the lander to interrogate for biosignatures, like actually a life detection mission. We think that there's material that's coming up close enough to the surface that could be sampled and be samples that maybe came from the ocean that could tell us about if there's actually life there.
2: So, so you're saying, okay, a follow-up mission would actually land on Europa and see if any evidence of life is, uh, you know, sort of oozed its way to the surface so you don't have to drill a 10-mile deep hole and uh, send something down it.
3: Yeah, I mean, that would be the first, like, kind of mission we would send. But then, potentially, we would also still want to get down to the ocean. You know, maybe we find evidence that's so tantalizing we want to keep going downwards, you know, or, or we don't find life, but we find evidence that we really need to just look, you know, deeper, right, to find it.
2: Well, finally, Kate, let me ask you this. I mean, you know... Looking for life in space is not a new endeavor. People have been doing it for a while, and, you know, even today, most of the hardware we have that's connected with the search for life is on the red planet. You know, Mm -hmm. it's rolling around the surface like the Perseverance rover, or it's orbiting or whatever. We've spent a lot of effort to check out Mars for life. Um, If you had to bet, I don't know if you're a betting woman, but (laughs) if you had to bet, would you say uh, we're going to find it first on Mars, or are we going to find life first on uh, this moon of Jupiter?
3: Um, well, if you're asking me really about the potential for life on these worlds, I would have to say, you know, my bet would have to be on Europa, where there is actually liquid water, right, that we know of, like, of course, aside from Mars, you know, maybe if we can get deep enough where there is liquid water as well, I think the potential is there. But right now, Europa is an active world. It has the energy, it has the ingredients, it has tons of water. You know, so I just, yeah, I think where the liquid water is, is is the place to look. Kate
2: Kraft, thank you so very much for speaking with us.
3: I had a great time. Thanks.
4: Kate Kraft is a planetary scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, and she is a staff scientist on the Europa Clipper mission.
2: Well, we're not quite done with this massive gas giant. Another of its large moons has the biggest active volcano in the solar system. Find out why that erupting mountain is relevant to the search for life. Plus, now that we know that most stars have planets
0: orbiting them, what else do we want to know about these so-called exoplanets? We don't know their detailed properties. I want to learn what they're made out of, what their atmospheres are made out of, and maybe whether some of them have life.
4: Next, we fly to another moon and beyond as we ask, what is suitable for life on Big Picture Science?
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
2: Say, are you an entrepreneur? An aspiring CEO, maybe? Well, here's a podcast that can help turn goals into success. It's called My First Million, and you'll find it around the top 50 on Apple Podcasts in the business category and top 10 in the entrepreneur category. It's hosted by Sam Parr, founder of The Hustle and Trends.co, and Sean Puri, an investor and former CEO of the social networking website Bebo. My First Million offers you the kind of inside info that actually helps. For example, brainstorming business ideas, such as a 10 a month side hustle or a discussion about the next Apple, or giving you tips on useful self improvements, such as the best and the worst ways for 20 somethings to make money. It's all good, it's all useful. I particularly like the episode on how to make millions with a modern day infomercial. Let me add it. Check out My First Million wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> It's sheer lunacy how many moons are in orbit around Jupiter. It's nearly 80. Seth, why is that?
4: Nearly 80 moons around Jupiter. Why is it collected so many? Because it's so big?
2: Well, I'm sure that helps. But it's also, it's location, location, location. It's in the outer part of the solar system where, when the solar system was forming, you know, four and a half billion years ago, there was a lot more stuff. A lot more raw material. Are all of the moons as big as Europa is? No, there are four big ones, but most of the rest are quite small. The NASA Europa Clipper, as we heard, will provide a closer look at one of those big ones. But another Jovian satellite has also intrigued scientists. The innermost of the four moons that Galileo first saw with his simple telescope named Io astonished scientists centuries later when, in 1979, the Voyager spacecraft cruised by and took the first close-up picture of it.
1: We have some people with remarkable imaginations, but none of them had imaginations good enough to, to expect what we found on Io. As we got a little closer to the satellite, uh, we saw images like this. Now, this was uh,
2: evidence of lava flow. Mm-hmm. It looks like a, a collapsed uh, caldera mm-hmm. and a very thin spreading of the dark material, which is, was thought to be lava. Mm-hmm. So we finally concluded, hey, we have a volcano, an active volcano, an active volcano. spouting out. To everyone's surprise, including that of Rodney Mills, the program manager for Voyager, as he was sharing the flyby results, a massive volcanic eruption was taking place. That volcano was later named Loki. Well, Jupiter
4: watchers are delighted that NASA's Juno mission has been extended to 2025 and, in particular, will turn its infrared camera, JIRAM, on
5: Loki. Infrared is great for looking at volcanoes. These things are glowing in the dark, they're warm. That's what infrared is good for, looking at warm stuff. I'm Julie Rathbun, I am a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. Okay, now
4: Io probably doesn't host life, but it may be helpful in assessing off-Earth
2: habitability. We've heard that, you know, tidal push and pull, which results in heating, provided by Jupiter and the other large moons, might make Europa's ocean warm enough to remain liquid. So if tidal heating interests you, says Dr. Ratman, then you'll probably want to get to know the largest active volcano in the solar system.
5: And in fact, most people have it wrong because most people think that Olympus Mons on Mars is the largest volcano in the solar system. I believe that's what Wikipedia says. But Wikipedia is wrong, as it is sometimes, especially in science. Olympus Mons is a volcanic construct. It's basically a mountain-built out of volcanic material. And it isn't even active. It was active millennia ago, it hasn't erupted in ages. Loki is active now. It was active yesterday. I know, I looked, uh, and it's much, much larger in size than the caldera on Olympus Mons. It's about the size of Southern California. Is there hot molten rock coming out of Loki or what is actually being emitted? It's definitely rock coming out of Loki. Most of the volcanoes on Iowa rock. It is very surprising. When we get to the outer solar system, a lot of things are very different than what they are like on Earth. But the volcanoes in Io are actually really similar to terrestrial volcanoes. You said most of the volcanoes on Io. How many volcanoes are on Io? Um, at least 100 active ones at a time. We've cataloged probably three or 400 active volcanoes on Io, active within the last 20 years. Julie, what is going on on this moon, I should say underneath or in the interior of this moon to produce all this activity? Oh, that's a great question. It turns out there's a different mechanism for heating than what we're used to in the inner solar system, something called tidal heating. And it's just the tidal interactions between Jupiter, Io, and some of the other moons in that system that cause Io to be constantly squeezed and pulled around by these orbital interactions. And all that squeezing, just like when you (laughs) do that to a stress ball, it warms it up. And that causes volcanoes. What are the big questions that you have about
4: this volcano?
5: Loki, I just want to understand how it's erupting. It's bright enough that we can observe it from the ground. I wasn't kidding when I said I observed it yesterday. It's really quite surprising that it, it erupts, it turns off, and then approximately 500 days later, it erupts again. Turns off, 500 days later, erupts again, turns off. Because no other volcano is that regular
4: no other volcano on earth has that kind of periodicity is what you're saying
5: correct yes absolutely and so understanding why we do have one theory uh which is that basically loki is a giant bowl of liquid rock it's a giant bowl of magma <laughs> and because the surface of io is cold it's out in, it's out by jupiter it's really cold out there this hot bowl of magma starts freezing solid from the top down and at some point, that solid crust gets so dense, it needs to sink, it just can't float anymore. And at that point, it sinks and more magma is exposed at the surface, starting a new eruption. Now,
4: Io is not the only moon in the Jovian system. Is there volcanic activity
5: on those other moons? And if not, why not? Ah, great question. So. The other way of thinking about that is if there's tidal heating going on on Io, if Jupiter's creating tidal heating on Io, is Jupiter creating tidal heating on these other moons? So that's sort of the way we would, I would think of that question. And the answer is absolutely. So Io is the closest Galilean satellite to Jupiter. It gets the strongest tidal heating, has the most volcanoes. The next moon out is Europa. It should also get fairly strong tidal heating. It probably does, but not quite as strong. And so since it's not quite as strong, what that means is Europa never got rid of its ice. We believe Io used to have water ice when it formed, but it, this tidal heating process was so strong that all the water basically boiled away and then disappeared from the atmosphere and it's completely gone. But Europa, we are fair, I'm fairly certain, I will make a bet, that there are volcanoes underneath the ice and water sub ocean volcanoes just like what we see on earth on the ocean floor well finally julie two questions about io could it
4: be a place for life and if not what sort of case do you make for continuing interest in a moon and in a volcano that probably doesn't have life on it when the word these days tends to be habitability
5: so you're absolutely right. Uh, Io is unlikely to be habitable in the way uh, we talk about with liquid water on uh, Europa and Mars. Io is t- either too hot or too cold in the various locations on the surface. And as I just said, all the water was boiled off and it's just gone out into the to the universe. There's no water anywhere on, on Io for the most very little, almost none. So. Why study I.O.? I have a couple of reasons. I'll I'll start off with if you really, really, really care about habitability. I.O. is still absolutely an important place to study. The only reason Europa is habitable is because of tidal heating. It's the only reason. If there was no tidal heating, Europa would look like the Earth's moon. It would not be habitable at all. Tidal heating is a very important heating process. This process was discovered only about 40, 50 years ago so we don't understand it as well as other processes so if you want to understand a process where are you going to study it Some place where it's really strong or someplace where it's really weak i mean hopefully both but io is the place in the solar system with the clearest signature of tidal heating if you want to understand that process you go to io so that's one reason another reason i mean volcanoes volcanoes are on earth people live with them every day And if you want to understand volcanic eruptions, you should study as many volcanoes as you can. And look, there's a world out there relatively nearby. It's in our solar system that has more active volcanoes on it than the Earth does. And then, I mean, really, the main reason is just volcanoes are cool. (laughs) That's what I think, especially, I mean, active volcanoes are cool.
4: Well, Julie Rathbun, thank you so much for making an impassioned case for the study of Loki on the moon Io. It was a pleasure to
5: talk to you. It was a pleasure to speak to you.
2: (laughs) Julie Rathbun is a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. Okay, let's zoom out from a single moon, out from the whole Jovian system, and consider worlds that are far from the sun. We might learn something about their habitable properties by using the James Webb Space Telescope set for launch in December 2021. Now, if studying an alien world with a telescope doesn't seem nearly as thrilling as physically visiting one, well, consider how telescopes have radically changed how we think about the universe. I mean, the moon Io was found by Galileo because he had a new way of looking at the sky. We're on the verge of having many more ways. The Webb telescope will be
4: joined by another space telescope, the wide-spectrum Louvoir, in a decade or so, to study the atmospheres of extrasolar planets, that is, planets that are orbiting other stars. One planetary system of particular interest is, Seth? I know you know what it is.
2: <laughs> I do. TRAPPIST-1, the TRAPPIST-1 system.
4: Was that the last big discovery made by the Kepler Space Telescope?
2: Well, I don't know that it was the last, no, but it was certainly one of the most interesting.
4: Mm-hmm. Because it had many planets
2: around yeah. the star. Yeah, and three of them, at least three, you know, are in the habitable zone. So this could be a place where you have sort of a inhabited system of planets rather than just an inhabited single planet.
4: Well, to find out more about that, University of California Berkeley astronomer Courtney Dressing, who studies planetary systems and their atmospheres, gives us a big-picture overview of these up-and-coming eyes in the sky.
2: Courtney, you've been interested in planets around other stars. Now, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't know about any planets. So beginning in 1995, now we find there are planets, and today we know, you know, 80%, 90%, maybe 100% of all stars have planets What's going
0: to happen in the next
2: 20 years? Are we going to learn that 80% of all planets have atmospheres
0: or something? I think in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to learn actually all of the details about the planets we've discovered. So far, we know them as pinpoints, and we know the numbers of planets we found. But we don't know their detailed properties. I want to learn what they're made out of, what their atmospheres are made out of, and maybe whether some of them have life. We should be able to answer that in 10 years or in 20 years.
2: It is rather remarkable that you've, you know, uh, come on the scene, as it were. You happen to go to school at a time when finding planets became one of the biggest stories in astronomy. I mean, it's it's rather remarkable because humans have been around for 300,000 years, and suddenly we know about planets.
0: I feel like I got really lucky. This was a science fiction dream of mine as a kid. I read and watched a lot of science fiction and dreamed about other planets, and now I get to do that as a career. doesn't make sense.
2: Okay, so what you're saying is that we might be able to learn You know, whether other planets have atmospheres, what fraction of them have atmospheres, what's in those atmospheres, how are we going to be able to do that? Planets are small, stars are bright, it's hard to see anything.
0: One of the things we can do is we can use the starlight and shine it through the planet's atmosphere. That will allow the planet to leave a fingerprint of its composition on the atmosphere. If we want to find the planets that are really, really small, then we can also try to block out the light from the star entirely using a different detection method.
2: Well, What is that? Describe the kind of (laughs) telescope it will take to make these kinds of measures.
0: For the first method, where you're using the starlight shining through the planet's atmosphere, you can use the transit method. So you could do that with the James Webb Space Telescope, which is coming online. That can do Earth-like planets orbiting very small stars like TRAPPIST-1, but most of the Earth-like planets we know about orbit stars that are too big to use James Webb to study their atmospheres. We'll learn a lot about larger planets with James Webb. If you really want to do an Earth-like planet orbiting a sun-like star, you're going to need a large space-based observatory like the Louvoir or Habex mission concepts, which were recently presented for the Decadal.
2: Now, Louvoir, that's kind of an interesting approach. Maybe you could describe a little bit of how Louvoir works. It sounds like, you know, Venetian blinds for my living room or something.
0: (laughs) Well, it's a lot better than Venetian blinds. LUVOIR would be a large space-based observatory. Uh, we have two designs. One is eight meters across. That's the small version. The big version is 15 meters across. In both cases, the telescopes are large enough so that they collect a ton of photons from the star. They also have exquisite precision and an advanced instrument suite. So we, we would be able to find a planet orbiting a star by blocking out the light from the star and capturing the light from a planet. We would then use a spectrograph to break up the light from the star in the planet and we will be able to look for atmospheric signatures like carbon dioxide and methane and oxygen. If we see those gases in certain combinations, and we've also characterized the stellar spectrum to know what kind of stellar radiation is hitting the planet's surface, we can then assess whether those signatures could be explained without life or whether life is required.
2: The senior scientist for NASA several years ago said that, well, within 20 years, we'll have found life somewhere. Uh, What's your bet? Is it going to be finding life in our solar system? Is it going to be a setting? experiment in finding, you know, Klingons' intelligent life, or is it going to be finding oxygen or methane in some planet's atmosphere?
0: I would be excited about any of those discoveries, although I'd probably hope for Vulcans rather than Klingons.
2: (laughs) Well, I didn't realize that they were so different, but then again, I'm not really an aficionado. Let me ask you one last question. You mentioned... The TRAPPIST-1 system, and that's, that's seven planets, right, all roughly about the same size as Earth?
0: Mm-hmm. The TRAPPIST-1 system is seven planets, all roughly earth size, some too hot, some too cold, some perhaps just right to have life on them.
2: Okay, so imagine that life pops up on one of those, maybe, uh, you know, some, something in the middle there where the conditions are somewhat more salubrious. Mm-hmm. I mean, life can spread from planet to planet when they're that nearby. I mean, these planets are very close to one another, Could it be that uh, TRAPPIST-1 is not just an inhabited uh, stellar system, but a whole ecosystem of inhabited planets?
0: I think that's quite possible. It'd be fascinating. If I lived on one of the TRAPPIST-1 planets and I knew that there was a hospitable planet right next door, I would definitely want to go there and see whether we could explore and find out whether there were other life forms living there.
2: Even if you were a bacterium?
0: I would have big ambitions.
2: But, but, but a small physical size. But, but bacteria could spread, right?
0: Well, it would be possible if you have, say, impactors. In our solar system, we have found impacts on Earth that were caused by meteorites from Mars. So you can imagine things from the outer regions of the Trappist system getting hit by asteroids or something from the outer solar system and then having material from that impact then making its way inward. All right. Maybe some little life forms could come along for the ride.
2: Yes, so they could hitchhike on a rock and uh, go land on another world, infect that world, and suddenly you have, the, you know, several worlds populated.
0: That could happen. It would ah. be fascinating to know if we do find life on one of the TRAPPIST-1 planets, do the other planets show the same signatures?
2: And finally, what about the moons of planets? I mean, I'm thinking of Avatar here, right? The moon was Pandora. And not only did they have critters that look very much like humans except for their skin complexion, but they also had, uh, you know, unobtainium, whatever the heck that was, right, (laughs) to to energize their economy. Uh, What about moons as possible habitats for something bigger than a bacterium?
0: Well, we've seen in our own solar system that some of the moons are some of the most fascinating places. Europa, Enceladus, Titan, those could be planets in their own right if they just weren't orbiting a planet themselves. So I think as we look out into the world at other stars with their own planets, it's reasonable to expect that some of those planets also have moons, and perhaps there'll be other examples of large planets with Earth-sized moons orbiting them.
2: Courtney Jessing, thanks so much for speaking with us.
0: Thank you.
4: Courtney Dressing is an astronomer at the University of California at Berkeley. Well, Seth, just coming back to the TRAPPIST-1 system, uh, it just sounds
2: so intriguing. How far away is that? Well, it's 49 light years, so there you go.
4: That sounds still pretty far away.
2: Well, I mean, you know, it depends on your, your metric, but actually... Well, the metric here is light years. So, 49 light years, yeah, I mean you know, astronomically speaking, that's pretty close. Nonetheless, it would take, what would it take? It would take about a million years for our fastest rocket to get to the TRAPPIST-1 system.
4: Okay. So if we did find life there, and if it were intelligent life, it would be unlikely that we would go and visit it. It would certainly be a one-way trip at the best.
2: Well, (laughs) yeah, one way if you're lucky. Yeah. Oh, then again, you could always ask them to come here. Maybe they have faster rockets. Well, it's one thing to look for life on other worlds, but what about seeding life where it doesn't yet exist? That's a plan for turning the red planet green.
1: I would like Mars to be a planet rich with life. Human life, yeah, but life in general. Rich in life, like the Earth. To me, life is what it's about.
4: Next, would terraforming Mars make it suitable for life? I'm Big Picture Science.
0: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Are you not where you want to be? If you were being held back by some sort of medical condition, you'd see a good doctor. And if your problem is anxiety, depression, grief, family problems, well, a skilled and trained professional can help with those too. Here's how to get that help go to our sponsor, betterhelp.com slash bigpicturescience. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. You can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get a thoughtful response. You can even schedule video or phone sessions, all without becoming anxious about finding the right professional or spending hours in a waiting room thumbing through dumb magazines. Look, I want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash science Join over a million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash science For a long time, Mars topped the list of places that scientists thought we'd find life off of Earth. and Just because when you look at Mars through a telescope or from an orbiter, you see that it once had running water, lakes, rivers, maybe even an ocean. And even though other objects now beckon, notably Europa, Mars is still very much on our minds in the hunt for extraterrestrial life. At the moment, NASA's Perseverance rover is crawling across its landscapes, collecting samples of the regolith, which is the surface rock, that will be tested for past or present life when they return to Earth.
4: Few people have had red planet fever like planetary scientist Chris McKay at NASA Ames Research Center. A scientist for many NASA Mars missions, he also conducts polar and desert research in Mars analogs such as the dry valleys of the Antarctic or Chile's Atacama Desert. So he's as gung-ho as ever about finding life on Mars, but you might interpret his second vision for the planet as a product of his impatience at not finding any.
2: Well, I don't know, Molly. I don't see it as impatience. But look, the plan to terraform Mars, that is, to undertake a large-scale engineering project to turn this hostile planet into a more habitable one, that's not new. It's been a thought experiment for decades Dr. McKay has long supported that idea.
4: So you don't think it's because he and other scientists are getting frustrated that they can't find life on Mars, so they want to turn around and plant it there themselves?
2: Yeah, well, maybe. I mean, but that's like saying, you know, I've never found big forests in the Sahara, and I'm getting frustrated, so let's go plant one. I'm not sure it's that. I think it's just that he's, he, his bottom line is always life, and life on Mars appeals to him even if we have to put it there. All right. Well, let's hear how he plans
4: to do this and why.
2: Chris, when people, you know, look at photos of Mars made by rovers or even orbiters, it kind of looks like a suburb of Tucson, Arizona without the cacti, right? It doesn't look too bad. Uh, What's it really
1: like on Mars? Well, in fact, you're right. Mars looks a lot like places we see on Earth, places that are not that bad. What you don't see in the picture is that The atmosphere on Mars is 100 times thinner than the atmosphere on Earth. Well, that's a problem, of course, because there's nothing to breathe, and an atmosphere is what keeps the Earth warm. So the first step in making Mars pleasant is put an atmosphere there.
2: Well, okay, I mean, I don't know. Do you need to make Mars pleasant? Because obviously uh, in The Martian, (laughs) Matt Damon walked around with a a suit,
1: and uh, he seemed comfortable enough. I think it depends on what you want Mars to be. I would like Mars to be a a planet rich with life. Human life, yeah, but life in general, rich in life, like the Earth. Uh, To me, life is what it's about. So, yes, in that case, you do need Mars to have a thick atmosphere. And the reason, the fundamental reason is not just to keep humans warm, but so that liquid water can be stable on the surface. Right now, liquid water is not stable on Mars, and that's bad news for all life forms, hot or cold.
2: And what about that Arizona-like look? I mean, you, you mentioned there's not much air, but you don't see that in the photos. Right. Something else you don't see in the photos is the temperature. Uh, it's not exactly like California.
1: Right. It's, it, it looks good, but it's cold and there's no air. But that look, that desert look is captivating. It, it, it draws me in. I've been studying Mars for decades, but still, when I look at those pictures, it touches something familiar. And I think it's those scenes that I've seen driving from Los Angeles to Las Vegas or along the highway, and you look out in the Mojave Desert, and then suddenly, here on this other planet, there it is. And I don't get that sense from any of the other worlds in our solar system. You look at pictures of the moon or Venus or Titan, and they're interesting, but they don't give that sense of familiarity that the Martian landscape does. And, and that's part of the urge to make it a place full of life.
2: Well, what would it take to do that? Uh, again, referring to Andy Weir's book, The Martian, you know, he had an enclosed environment and he grew potatoes. You know, uh, they didn't expect to grow anything outdoors, as it were.
1: Right. right. Well, the, the core problem in terms of making Mars habitable is making it warmer. And the, the logic there is that if it was warmer, then the atmosphere would be thicker the CO2 that's frozen in the polar caps or in the ground, if there is any, will come out and the water will turn to vapor. Then water vapor will go in the atmosphere, CO2 would go up, the atmosphere would get thicker, and if you're lucky that will cause a positive feedback. So the thicker atmosphere will make it even warmer, making it warmer will make the atmosphere even thicker. That's the original scenario for what we call terraforming Mars. Life forms from Earth can live there and grow there, and they gradually turn that carbon dioxide atmosphere into an oxygen-rich atmosphere. And then you have an Earth-like planet on Mars. That's the scenario. But when you work out the physics of it and the details and the chemistry, there's a lot of interesting subtleties. Some things are surprisingly easy, and some things are surprisingly hard.
2: Well, well the first step in this, this chain of events, which once you get it going, sounds like it runs itself is to warm up the planet by 10 or 20 degrees. I, I don't know if that's Fahrenheit or centigrade, but it probably doesn't matter too much <laughs> what units you use. But but how do you do that? I mean, you just bring a lot of hmm.
1: space eaters? Well, the, it turns out that the warming up the planet by 20 or 30 degrees centigrade is the easiest step. And we're doing it on We have practice doing it. We're doing it on Earth. We are putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Super greenhouse gases are particularly good at it and the planet responds very quickly. As we see on Earth, you put these gases in the atmosphere, and within decades, temperatures change. Right now on Earth, this is alarming, and on Mars, it would be just what the doctor ordered. But we
2: do it on Earth by buying SUVs and and stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's not terribly practical on Mars. What, what, what do you do? Throw old refrigerators uh, on Mars, you know, and release the chlorofluorocarbons or whatever they're using as refrigerant?
1: Clearly, you don't just do it haphazardly, the way we're doing it on Earth. You have to carefully choose what are the greenhouse gases you use. And it turns out you want to have greenhouse gases that are long-lived, they live a long time in the atmosphere, they, they don't break down into some compound that's toxic, and they don't destroy ozone. You'll need ozone on Mars just like you do on Earth. And the, the gas that fits that description are fluorinated compounds so-called perfluorinated compounds, and sulfur hexafluoride. These are compounds of carbon and sulfur with fluorine attached to them. Now the good news is there's plenty of carbon on Mars, plenty of fluorine, and plenty of sulfur. So you can make these gases on Mars. Uh, But the next step was a thick atmosphere forms because of carbon dioxide and water coming out of the ground in the polar caps. Now there, we're guessing we're guessing. Is there enough carbon dioxide to form a thick atmosphere? Is there enough water to form an ocean? Is there enough nitrogen to go in the atmosphere to help make a breathable atmosphere? Well, we think the answer to those might be yes, but we're not sure. That's the big uncertainty. Is there enough stuff there to, to make the planet the way we'd like to make it?
2: But is anybody, well, at NASA, for example, seriously talking about terraforming Mars?
1: Well, I'm at NASA and I'm seriously talking about terraforming <laughs> okay. Mars. I'm seriously studying. What I what I should really say, though, is we're seriously studying the possibility that Mars could be terraformed.
2: Uh, just the time scale here, though, Chris, I think you mentioned that, you know, this process, if you started it tomorrow, I mean, you're talking about
1: a century-long effort, right? Yeah, a century. It would take about 100 years. But a hundred years doesn't bother me. If, if I round off my age in decimal, it's a it's hundred, right? So a hundred is easy to conceive. We have projects, we can imagine projects that go a hundred years. Uh, what we can't imagine is projects that go, say, a hundred thousand years or a million years. And so the question is, is warming Mars a hundred-year timescale or a million-year timescale? Well, the answer very clearly, from the physics, is a hundred-year timescale, and that's conservative in terms of the efficiency.
2: So, okay, let, let's just get to the consequences of doing this. All right, I think that uh, at least some of my uh, acquaintances think that by terraforming Mars, you relieve you relieve the pressure, the population pressure that we have here on Earth. That you know, more and more people, we got to do something about that, and we'll just send them to Mars.
1: Not so fast, unfortunately. Remember. Warming up the atmosphere and getting a thick atmosphere was just the first step. The second step to make it habitable for humans was for those plants that were put there to turn that carbon dioxide into oxygen. That step proves to be surprisingly hard, very hard. And a reasonable calculation, somewhat optimistic, suggests that it would take 10,000 to 100,000 years. Now that is way beyond the event horizon in terms of what we can see in terms of planning. A hundred years we can plan for, we can see. Ten thousand, a hundred thousand years? No. So the story for Mars turns out to be good but not ideal. We can warm it up, we can make a thick atmosphere, we can make it suitable for life, but it doesn't become like the present Earth. It becomes like Earth was three billion years ago. Imagine Earth three billion years ago, thick CO2 atmosphere, lots of life, but not an atmosphere suitable for humans or mammals, uh, things that need oxygen. That's still a very interesting and fascinating world, but it's not move a lot of people there, they can just go around do their thing. So it's kind of semi-terraforming.
2: I mean, it's warm, there's a thick atmosphere, but you still have to
1: have that uh, breathing apparatus on your back. Right, 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 right. So it's it's not ideal for humans, but uh, I still think there's a lot of value An interest in what you can do, a planet full of life, a second example of life in our biosphere, and certainly more comfortable for humans than the present Mars.
2: (laughs) All right, well, finally, Chris, if you look, I don't know, 200 years into the future here, and somebody said, oh, we're gonna take you up to Mars, to take a look around, what do you expect to see?
1: Well, if we started the terraforming process, And if there was enough carbon dioxide and nitrate and water to make a biosphere, then in 200 years, I'd expect to see a place that looked like a forest. Trees, tall trees, uh, shrubs, uh, look sort of like a montane forest you might see coming down a mountainside. Lakes? Lakes, rivers, rain, clouds, rainbows, everything. Now, the picture won't be telling you that the atmosphere is not breathable. Right? So it's still an illusion. It's still not quite what we think. But it will be very captivating to be able to see pictures in a textbook of Mars and say that these are trees, these are plants, these are insects maybe. No birds, no large animals, but a very interesting world and maybe complete in terms of biological cycling. The large animals that breathe oxygen, like birds and mammals— They're like uh, on the fringes of importance in terms of the biosphere.
2: Chris McKay, thanks so very
1: much for speaking with us. My pleasure. See you on Mars, Seth.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Chris McKay is a research scientist at NASA Ames Research Center. If I have this straight, it might take 100 years to warm the atmosphere with greenhouse gases to produce water on Mars. Is that right?
2: Yes. Right. Okay. Oh. Okay. Well. Now,
4: but if we wanted to breathe the atmosphere, if humans wanted to breathe the atmosphere outside of spacesuits, uh, you would need to give plants ten thousand to a hundred thousand years to turn carbon dioxide into breathable oxygen.
2: Seems to be the case.
4: Okay. So he said that's that's basically off the table. So my question to you is, why would we want to terraform Mars if it weren't for, you know, for human habitation?
2: Well. Two things. One, you could grow food even if you didn't have much oxygen in the atmosphere. So that's, that's a consideration. And the other thing is, you know, you'd be one step closer to the maybe the ultimate goal, which is to say make it as, as attractive a place for humans as the Earth is.
4: Really, the attraction is not to move humans up to Mars, but to create what is really like the mother of all terrarium projects, right, of plants and microbes only. That is an interesting idea.
2: Well, it is to me. I mean, this is a personal thing. Some people would say, oh, I see no point in ever, you know, planting redwoods on Mars or something like that. But I I kind of sympathize with uh, Chris on this. I mean, Chris has been talking for a very long time about putting plants on Mars, Earth plants on Mars. That's separate from the question of whether Mars has any indigenous life. And, okay, if it doesn't have any indigenous life, to export life to Mars there's something, I th- something noble in it, for me, anyhow. Can I bring up s- some of the ethical issues
4: of course, it of seems course. to raise? Okay, so you talked about um, you know the indigenous life on Mars, but if you bring Earth life to Mars, aren't you essentially bringing an invasive species to the planet, and if there are life forms on Mars, which would certainly be microbial, um, you might endanger them.
2: I've heard people argue this on both sides. Some people will say, look, Maybe there is Martian, you know, life two meters down from the surface. But tough luck, Martian ponds come, because we're bringing our own life. That's one camp. The other camp says, no, we've got to leave Mars to the Martians. And they would not, you know, want to threaten it. In that case, then Chris's vision is subject to proving that you wouldn't, in fact, wipe out the Martians. Mm
4: -hmm. So the plan here is that you would rehabilitate another planet's atmosphere and its climate and and create maybe a sustainable ecology, all while we're dealing with the climate crisis and the ecological crisis on our own planet. So can you really imagine that we would turn our resources to terraforming another planet um, instead of protecting the life on this planet, a, a planet that we already know has life and a planet that is quite dear to us?
2: Well, uh, you know, I find this a kind of a false argument because it's saying we can only do one thing, and that's never been the case, right? In the 15th century, Europe was wrestling with, you know, the Black Death, but that didn't stop them from exploring and mapping the Earth. So, you know, I don't know why you couldn't do both. Honestly, I don't.
4: Well, Seth, that that was a very civil debate (laughs) about, I I appreciate it, about the merits of, of terraforming Mars.
2: Are you disappointed, Molly? Would you prefer, prefer
4: <laughs> no, I'm that it was actually, no, more emotional? No, I'm actually emotional? relieved. I'm relieved. Okay. <laughs> okay. So now the big picture
2: perspective of the show. Well, I think it just demonstrates that, you know, there are plenty of candidates for finding life, alien life, if you will. You know, we've been talking about Mars and Europa, but there are two other moons of Jupiter, Ganymede and Callisto, that might have subsurface oceans too. There are two moons of Saturn, you know, Enceladus and Titan that could support life. Even Pluto might have some life. The clouds of Venus might have some life. There are at least seven other places in the solar system, places we can go with our rockets that might have life. That's pretty encouraging.
4: This show is made possible thanks to someone who is quite suitable in producing it, Gary Niederhoff. I am executive producer
2: of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena shulsky David and Sammy David and to NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study, among other things, the possibilities of life on other bodies of our solar system. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Chostak. Also a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
4: This episode of Big Picture Science, exploring upcoming space missions to other worlds, is called Suitable for Life.